Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. It's your host, Joseph Freaky, alongside CEO Eric Jacobson. Eric and I are going to have a discussion about the early portions of the cemetery here at Carnton and the McGavick Confederate Cemetery, how it comes to be, some of its origins. And this is kind of a continuation of last month's episode where we talked about the family now getting a chance to talk about yet another time where they insert themselves into a situation here in Franklin uh, and that really shadows a lot of what they went through on November the 30th. So, Eric, welcome back to the dispatch. And I guess a good place for us to get started then is sort of how the cemetery comes to be. Uh, The origins of it are are really predate 1866, and the origins of it go back to, I mean, right after the battle and the spring and summer and fall of 1865. Everybody's dealing with death. And um, John McGavick, we know, was recently found a letter that he's corresponding with someone from Mississippi who was looking for his son. So, you know, the origins of it are... I think people are just trying to figure out what to do. And so in the spring of 66, that comes, uh, you know, they, 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 they decide what they, what they want to do, which is to exhume the dead from where they were first buried and, you know, bring them to a, a place of respect and, and um, decency and, and really finality. And this takes them off of the battlefield where they've been buried sort of sporadically immediately following the fight. And then this is also in that same period, that post-war period in Reconstruction, where we're starting to see the establishment of some national cemeteries, and of course some that had existed since the war, during the war. Stones River is a perfect example. So these two things are happening kind of at the same time. Is What's the big major difference, the obvious difference, of course? Well, the U.S. government had been uh, exhuming and reburying and creating national cemeteries even before the end of the war. I think Stones River was... The National Cemetery there was created in 1864. So the U.S. government is exhuming U.S. dead. But the U.S. government was never going to exhume Confederate dead. Uh, frankly, m- many Confederates, you know, whether we like the term or not, were considered traitors by, the, by uh, elements of the northern populace and certainly some in the U.S. government. So they just weren't going to expend taxpayer dollars. Mm-hmm. And or or you know tax money, so um, they the Confederates are left to private organizations, to individuals, to small groups, and you know I think one of the more famous examples is the dead from Gettysburg are moved by a private group back to Virginia, and so much the same happens here. John McGavick and a small group of people got together and and decided they had to do something. I think it's a very noble effort. I think it is an effort at, um, as I said earlier, about decency and finality. The, the dead, I mean, they're, they're just all over the place. They're, they're on the McGavick property. They're on uh, Fountain Branch Carter's property. And, and it's just kind of a disgusting mess because, you know, there are just bodies all over the farm fields south of town. And, you know, what have, he, what have human beings done for the longest time? You know, we try to have respect for the dead, and we try to gather them up and bury them and take care of them. So I think this is an extension of the human experience. So the reburial process begins in that spring of 1866, and it takes roughly three or so months to complete. What does that process sort of look like, and how is there, because of course we have the cemetery record book, how is that process of identification coming about? So when I worked on my second book, which is about the cemetery, you know, I was just 
curious because there were all the stories. You know, it's like the dead just popped out of the ground and ended up at Carnton, or the McGavicks had done the work. And I was like, well, I, I very much doubt the McGavicks would have done the work or gotten their hands dirty like that. I mean, and who would, um, you know, among their among their class? So there had to be. I just. I felt there had to be some process. And although it's a little shadowy because it's not like there were tremendous records kept, there was this group form that hired, they, they basically put out a bid and it was $5 a body and three brothers and a fourth man got the job. So it's five bucks, but four ways. Um, I do think there, there was a local man and his son who were making the, as John McGavick later said, the oak boxes that the, that the soldiers were buried in. So they start work very late March or the first few days of April. And they worked, you know, weather permitting, other than rain. Um, I think they worked five or six days a week. Of course, tragedy strikes within the first month because one of the brothers, Marcellus, got very sick and died. We, we don't know what caused his death. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that he got some nasty disease from handling you know, remains, bodies that have been in the ground for 18 months. But, you know, the, the Cuppets, George Cuppet, Marcellus, Polk, and Robert Sloan, you know, they worked nonstop. And they were they were not only exhuming bodies, they were trying to identify as many as they could. Now, the way they identify them is when the soldiers were first buried, they'd been buried by their friends. So the graves were, you know, actually reasonably well marked. But some of those original markers were lost and that was one of the, I think, impetus uh, moments for, for John McGavick and others is these very crude boards that marked the graves and told of the names and the units were being lost. So the cuppets were gleaning what they could from the still standing boards. And so over the course of about two and a half months, they exhumed 1,481 sets of remains and identified about 900. I mean, it's just a, it's a monumental task. And it was just really awful work. But, you know, this was going on all over the country. Now, Carnton and the McGavick Confederate Cemetery become just, like, you know, intertwined. You know, the cemetery becomes just, at that time, it becomes part of Carnton, mm-hmm. almost as if it had always been in a, in a terribly tragic irony. I've told people through the years that some of the Mississippians who are buried there today likely walked over their own graves. You know, they walked right through that area under artillery fire as they headed into the as they headed into the storm. Keeping kind of in that same vein, the work that's being done while hazardous is already starting within a month or so of the cemetery being complete, is starting to be publicized. People are starting to see that there's a cemetery here at Carton for the dead at Franklin. But then even before that work was begun, there were people that were coming to town that there's a what we had found a few months ago about the Missourians that were buried here. Mm-hmm. And there's people that are coming, they're visiting, they're seeing graves, they're seeing the names, they're seeing the states, and they're writing back home to their newspapers or they're taking the list, which is one of the things that was so fascinating about that account that we found from the Missourians was that this man came and documented everyone that he could read. And then you compare that with who's identified in the cemetery, you can compare that with who's identified in the cemetery books, and it gives us kind of a little bit better of a picture of what those immediate burials looked like. But then what is the response to the cemetery after it becomes uh, publicized? 
Well, back to <clears throat> what you just mentioned, there were people from all over the South, Mississippi, Alabama, certainly Tennessee, who came here after the battle and took the remains of their loved ones home. Then there's this guy from Missouri who shows up before the cemetery is created and you know, he, he logged as best he could who was out there in the initial grave. So that was an amazing find because I, I, I knew there had to be a system as I, as I saw how the dead were buried and I saw the process by which the cuppets worked. I knew that the dead had to be buried at Carnton in much the same order that they had first been buried. It was the only thing that made sense. It's not like you, you know, like you were going to go diagonally or sideways Mm -hmm across the graves you would you would dig them up one by one by one as they were buried move them in much the same order this newspaper can't confirm that but as word begins to spread harper's weekly runs a story about it in the summer of 1866 right after it opened and so people just started to show up you know they didn't come out in waves but there were people who who came here not just then i mean they i think that people actually came here in bigger numbers in later years you know, I think there's this first wave, then there's a bit of a lull, and then in later years, like especially through the 1870s and 1880s, they they started trying. You know, they dug into the past. They wanted to find their father or their brother or a friend, and and old soldiers who came here, especially in the 1880s and the 1890s. The newspapers are filled with guys on both sides who would walk the battlefield and then would come to the confederate cemetery and they all talked about what a beautiful setting it was and how appropriate it was for those who had died to be buried here and that all comes as part of the care for the cemetery then for the mcgavics is that they're given sort of the record book and they're kind of seen to to care for the cemetery for the rest of their lives in that sense right they do take care of it i don't know how because they never said a a, a word about it i they just seemed to, it became part of their lives. I think they just cared for it as a matter of fact. I mean, frankly, for all I know, they, they probably had, you know, a handful of sheep who mowed the grass, you know, in, in the 1870s and 1880s. That wouldn't be, that was actually, I learned that um, animals were used quite a lot to clean up cemeteries in the late 19th century because goats and sheep were really good at that. But uh, they just took care of it. Mm-hmm. And I think they, uh, I, I, God, I wish I could have been part of the conversation that John and Carrie almost certainly had to have probably in 65, 66 about, you know, should we do this? Because if we do it, it's ours, and we're going to be stuck with this the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And they did it, and they were, and they just took care of it until way later on when they were both you know growing old and the original uh, wooden boards that were put into the McGavick Cemetery were beginning to weather and so there was a fundraising effort a local um uh actually UCV camp early sons of confederate veterans camp helped raise the money to put in the the second markers the the granite stones which are uh I'm sorry the limestone ones that are now have been not replaced but have been in addition there you have granite stones out there so there's actually three different layers of even the the grave markers mm-hmm. but I tell people for years on tour, John and Carrie spent half their lives maintaining one of the probably two largest private Confederate cemeteries in the country, and they did it almost all on their own. And there's, I think it's always really interesting to think about their experiences on November the 30th and then 
talk about how they come into maintaining the cemetery because it becomes almost this on the 30th they really didn't have much of a choice the house was going to be used as a field hospital this was going to happen to them but then two years later they make this kind of conscious decision like you said that they had to have had a discussion about how it would be with them for the rest of their lives there's something i think that's incredibly powerful about that moment and incredibly powerful about those parallels between the 30th and then that's one day and this is the rest of their life. I can't prove this, but I would, I have long thought that if it was not for John and Carrie McGavick, there would not be a Confederate cemetery in Franklin, Tennessee. They did it. And nobody else was standing up, you know, grabbing the reins of responsibility like they did. And I think that is, that alone places them on a level of, um, honor and respect that that is just very unique and this is also in the same period where cemeteries across the south are being established confederate cemeteries private cemeteries on battlefields mass graves are starting to be uh, kind of gone through and men are being removed so this is really in that period in the towards the tail end of reconstruction and even throughout throughout reconstruction is the first confederate memorials are being established in the form of cemeteries this is just one of an isolated case of hundreds that are being established throughout the entire battle-born and battle-torn South. I just told someone last week <clears throat> that cemeteries were the original uh, locations of Confederate iconography. Mm-hmm. And unless you're just a complete nut... They're not at all debated today. I mean, cemeteries are a place for the dead to rest. And what I told this person last week was, in 1877, that's only 11 years after the Confederate cemetery here was created, Nathan Bedford Forrest was buried in, of all places, a cemetery. He was buried in a Confederate cemetery in Memphis, Tennessee, and of course was years later exhumed by his supporters— and moved and a big statue put over the top of him. And I said to this person, if they'd have just left him in the cemetery in Memphis, along with all the other Confederate soldiers, I bet you $5 that's where he'd be today. Because no normal person is going to argue about a cemetery. Through all the chaos of the last number of years, not one person has ever fussed at us about the cemetery here at Carnton. Not a single person. And I think there's a lesson in that, whether we want to learn from the lesson or not. I think what the McGavicks did and what happened in Franklin was altogether appropriate. I mean, going out there on extended tours, going out there with, with uh, you know, guests that come in and they have a connection to the cemetery, there's always the questions about, oh, can you tell me about this person? Can you tell me about this person? And there's 1,400 and now 1,496 men to pick from. And there, and for the longest time, that's what I was trying to do with Facebook posts: was write about the men that are buried there to tell a little bit more. What are a couple of the soldiers and their stories that really just stick out to you? Um, you know, the the cemetery has a whole like collection of of. There, there are some that are just feel-good stories. You know, you mm-hmm. can pick, like, the first, you know, probably the oddest burial out there is Charles Chan, the Chinese, the adopted uh, Texan who was from China, who was, you know, in there with the, with the you know, ranks of the other Texans. And so, you know, you don't, you're not going to find many Charles Chans in Confederate or, or for that 
you know, case federal cemeteries. Um, Franklin Hale is a Tennessee soldier who actually got as far inside the federal earthworks as the Carter Smokehouse, where he was actually killed by friendly fire. Um, there are people like uh, uh, in the South Carolina section, um, T.J. Bostic, whose wife mm-hmm. put up what's believed to be the first stone marker in the cemetery. It's a Masonic marker. She likely got help from the local Franklin Lodge. There, although it's not an original marker, but the unknown marker, I think is, so that's not a particular soldier, but that's a, an impressive marker denoting those who could not be identified. Uh, Robert Hurt in the Tennessee section, a family um, who's a family that owned 55 slaves. I mean, Robert Hurt came right out of the slave aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not just fighting for states' rights. He's fighting for, you know, the continued way of life that he and his family enjoyed. Eli Capel, his father... Uh, I'm sorry, Robert Capel, whose uh, father, Eli, owned over 90 slaves in southern Mississippi. Um, but maybe the one that I have gravitated to over the years is Walter Rohr, because Walter Rohr was an educated man. He was fully committed to the cause, and just before his death, he wrote a letter that I've quoted so many times. And you know, I know some people they are like, oh, we don't want to hear about this. Well, I think actually those are the people who need to hear about it because Walter Rohrer lived in a time that was Walter Rohrer's time. It doesn't belong to anyone else. It belongs to him and to his contemporaries. And, and shortly before he was killed here, he said that he and his comrades were noble martyrs engaged in a holy cause. Those words sting, you know, for some people today that they believed, Rohrer believed he was a martyr and that he was fighting a holy war. Now, you can criticize Eric Jacobson and anybody else who quotes that sort of stuff. The problem isn't with us. The problem then is with the person who doesn't like it, because Walter Rohrer was honest. That's what he believed, and he's buried here. You know, and I think for the war to get to its conclusion, unfortunately, as tragic as it may seem, these men had to die. There had to be a battle as violent as Franklin to get us to the end of the war. In an ironic way, that's why I think the cemetery is such a wonderful place because it's peaceful, it's quiet, it's serene, it's still kind of quiet and out in the middle of nowhere. And it's so completely contradictory to the violent, awful nature of the battle. It is... It's, it's, a, it's really a place to think about that particular day in that four-year period and that the men buried there all including charles chan were all a creation of their time and here they rest for all eternity i think that's a fitting way to bring us to this this sort of last question is where does the cemetery sort of sit in our interpretation and where does it sit sort of in kind of like this broader picture of of how how do you interpret a cemetery, aside from talking about each of the men? Is, you have to encapsulate in that moment. It is The cemetery is as central to our day-to-day interpretation as the battle itself is. We talk about it every day. Yeah. And cemeteries, I have come to... I guess I knew this, but I've come to really know this with the one here. Cemeteries are as much for the living as they are for the dead. They are a place for people to remember... They are a place for people to understand, and you can do both in the cemetery. 
because you can remember those who were buried there and you can remember what happened, but it helps a military cemetery like this especially. It helps you better understand the time. You cannot walk in the cemetery at Normandy without thinking of the enormity of the event. You cannot Mm -hmm. go to Little Bighorn and see some of the graves and not think about what happened. You cannot go to Ground Zero, which is essentially a graveyard itself, a cemetery, without thinking about what happened. The same is true here. If you just blindly walk through it, just you know, thinking about the heroism of these men, well, then you're missing a big part of the story. And I think the same is true of Stones River, mm-hmm. if you go there, because that's the other piece of the Confederate cemetery here. It's another piece of that puzzle. You have to go to both. Mm-hmm. So additional sources that people can find out more, obviously, you mentioned it earlier, is your book on the cemetery, McGavitt Confederate Cemetery, and that's available online and at all three bookstores, Carter House, Carton, and Ripa Villa. Eric, thank you for joining us on this episode. Thank and you. And we will exit out like this. We'll see you on the battlefields. <laughs>